Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. I know that for some of us, the coronation is just a distant memory now. Maybe you didn't even watch it. In some ways, it was perhaps a little bit jarring in this contemporary world. A bit unrealistic, maybe. A bit too, well, uh, religious, according to some who were astonished, apparently, to realise it was actually a Christian church service, which seemed so out of place in the secular republic of their dreams. The high point was, I think, the choir singing Zadok, singing Handel's Zadok the Priest, which tells the story of the anointing of Israel's ancient King Solomon as Charles, behind that screen, in a moment of privacy, was himself anointed with holy oil. And you might remember, if you watched it, uh, the climactic refrain, God save the king, long live the king, may he live forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Of course, we know he won't actually live forever at all. In fact, a lot of people observed that under the weight of that crown, Charles was looking a little bit wobbly already. May he live forever. Is a, it's a nice sentiment. But nobody who said it or sang it, I think, actually meant it. Because we know that everybody has a use-by date, royalty or not. Every body has a use-by date, royalty or not. Now, on that note, I want to bring you to the words of the Apostle Peter in what can accurately be called the first ever Christian sermon. See what he started? Peter stands up in front of the crowd and he unpacks the words of the prophet Joel and then two Psalms of David and says that those ancient words need to be ultimately reconsidered as being all about Jesus, who really is, he says, the king who will live forever. This is Peter's explanation of the strange rushing of wind and and tongues of fire that they've just experienced. We heard about them last week. And particularly the fact that all these pilgrims in Jerusalem could somehow hear the words of the apostles in their own native tongues. You might remember some said when they heard it, perhaps the local Hebrew speakers who didn't understand, they said, these guys are just drunk. And that's where Peter begins. This is his reply which you can follow again from verse verse 15. He says, these people aren't drunk, as you suppose. The pub's not even open yet. It's only 9am. This is the dawning of the age of the Spirit, exactly as foretold by the prophet Joel. This is the Spirit Israel's been waiting for, the time for a change of heart. He says, this is what's happening today. Which means, again, in the words of Joel, it's time to call on the name of the Lord 
and be saved. Of course, what Peter most wants to talk about is the resurrected Jesus, because that, you remember, is what the apostles were commissioned to do. And in one huge 81-word sentence that runs from verse 22 to 24 without a break, that is exactly what Peter does. A summary of the story of this very particular, very specific man from an ordinary country town who God has marked out as being someone extraordinary. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice Peter says this is God at work in an incredible way. God attested him. God did mighty works through him. And you, fellow Israelites, what you did is you delivered him up to be crucified and killed by the lawless Romans. Here's the point. God raised him up again. Because what he literally calls the birth pains of death could not hold him down. Which brings us to the question, well, so what? I mean, it's unusual to be sure. Unprecedented, yes. But when you start to understand it in the light of two ancient Psalms, the implications are not just for the metaphysics of life and death, but actually for the way we are meant to be living our lives in the here and now, the way the whole universe, in fact, is ordered. Now, I know it is our universal existential question, is death the end? But this is even more than that. There's that show Upload streaming on Amazon Prime where if you can afford it, you can have your consciousness uploaded to the cloud when you die. A simulated 3D resort. Everything you can dream of. And you can even communicate with physical folks on social media, living the dream. Which is exactly what Ray Kurzweil has been working on in real life at Google. Capturing consciousness as data in the cloud. I guess the only downside is the pop-up ads all the time. But Ray, optimistically, is going to have his body stored in liquid nitrogen in the hope that one day he can be revived and re-downloaded. All his memories, which may or may not be the essence of him. Science is desperately trying to beat death and decay. But according to the logic Peter is explaining from the Psalms, the resurrection of Jesus means even more than that. Because did you notice ancient King David seems convinced that as the Holy One of God, as God's anointed King, 
He won't need a hard drive, won't need ice packs. David is apparently convinced that as the Holy One of God, as God's anointed one, that his life, that his very body is somehow going to be preserved forever and he's not going to be abandoned to the realm of the dead. I look at his words on the screen. Here's Peter quoting from Israel's favourite ever king from Psalm 16 that we heard in the choral psalm. Who in the same sentiment, it seems, as the coronation of Charles, seems to think that his king, he'll live forever. Here's what David said. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My flesh will also dwell in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Now, of course, here's the awkward problem. If David was talking about himself, he was clearly overly optimistic, wasn't he? Which Peter points out next, names the elephant in the room. Verse 29, he says, King David got old and he died. King David was buried in a tomb. It's a tourist attraction. Which makes words like, you will not let your faithful one see decay, seem kind of hollow. Unless, of course, in the end, maybe David wasn't quite faithful enough to qualify. Unless King David, in all his glory, was just a pale shadow of what a true faithful king was meant to look like. So here's Peter's logic. What if the way to recognise God's truly faithful king was to watch and wait until one came who wasn't abandoned to the grave, who didn't see decay? A bit like the legend of King Arthur waiting for the one who could draw the sword from the stone. In this case, waiting for the one who didn't stay dead in the tomb. Well, did you hear about Jesus of Nazareth? David didn't fulfill his own words, but this Jesus did. Now you'll see that is exactly where Peter goes in his speech. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. Which means this Jesus, you see, is the long-awaited Christ, the faithful one. The real and only God-anointed, imperishable king. Whose reign really does go on and on forever. Ascended, exalted, at the right hand of God. From where, says Peter, he has poured out the long-awaited, heart-changing Spirit of God. Now again, you can follow his logic in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, is poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing Now, if you were here this morning as a sceptic, and you are more than welcome, it's a nice place to spend a Sunday morning because the music is good, among other things. But if you were here this morning as a sceptic, or even just someone on the fence, 
I'm not asking you so much to accept that claim at face value, as much as to say this is the driving logic at the very start of the movement that we today call Christianity. Peter is explaining what's happened. That the strange events they've just read, and if you missed last week, go back in a Bible and read the start of the chapter. The strange events that they have witnessed are evidence of the long ago promise of God's Spirit being poured out, finally being fulfilled. Which confirms then that this Jesus, who they've seen resurrected, is in fact the long-promised King. And these apostles, at least, firmly believe it. Even if you, if you at this distance might be sceptical. But here is the summary, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. In other words, you guys really, really blew it. The one you crucified. God has given full endorsement, put him in charge, made him the one you will ultimately answer to on the last day for all your injustice and your self-centered political games, your abuse of the poor, all the things Jesus himself had spoken against in Israel that they ultimately nailed him for. In the words of Psalm 110 in verse 35, God is going to turn the enemies of Jesus into his footstool. And the enemies, here they are, the Israelites who bayed for his blood, who cried out, crucify him. By his resurrection, the tables are well and truly turned. And when the crowd hears those words, notice they are mortified, they're cut to the heart. They say, brothers, what should we do? Now, what do you reckon the answer to that is if you were someone like they were and suddenly came to the realisation that, that Jesus they had treated like dirt is actually the one God considers to be the focal point of all humanity? You might expect to hear too late, too bad. You made your bed, you lie in it. This is arguably the biggest mistake ever made in the history of humanity. And humanity has done some pretty dumb stuff. There's plenty to choose from. So what should they do? See, the good news is God is always open to a change of heart. So being cut to the heart is exactly the right place to start. And so Peter spells it out using a word that's kind of become a Christian buzzword, but which basically means reverse direction. Change your mind. Change the way you're heading. The word repent. Then another buzzword. Be baptized. Which at that time simply meant be washed. Just look at his words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn around and be washed. 
Which is interesting because in Judaism, this kind of washing ritual was fundamental. To go to the temple, you'd have to stop off and be washed first at a mikvah, every time a wash pool. They were everywhere. To become a Jew, if you wanted to convert, you'd have to be washed first at a mikvah. If you buy a new cooking pot, you can't use it until you bring it to be washed first at a mikvah, to be purified, set apart. And friends, these days I think the idea of being baptised at all, it, it's weird. And more than that, denominations spend forever arguing about whether you should be dipped or sprinkled, whether it's only for adults or if it's for kids as well. But in Judaism, they would wash anything that moved. It was happening all the time. But this time it's different. See, this time it is a change in direction, not to do with the symbolic act of the washing itself, but a change in that this time it is in a whole new name. Did you notice? Because now it is in the name of Jesus the Christ. This is a new and different washing. And the promise is that now that as they wash their bodies, they can be washed clean on the inside as well and forgiven in the name of this merciful King who ultimately will pour out his spirit on anyone and everyone who turns to him. Not always in tongues of fire and strange tongues of men, but always in a change of heart. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so astonishingly, 3,000 of them do exactly that which is what we're told in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, my friend Phil Court has visited the ancient temple forecourts as a tourist, and he says the tour guides actually point out the place where this would have happened. The ancient mikvahs, the washing pools, and You can visualize there the 12 apostles, each one of them at the 12 greater mikvahs, a queue of 250 people at each. Can't wait for this fresh start. This washing promised by the Spirit. And so the church, 120 people total in chapter 1, now with 3,000 new members in a day. And then as a consequence, they do this from verse 42. Devoted to listening to every word from the lips of these apostles who have seen and heard Jesus firsthand. Sharing in fellowship, a a deep friendship. Sharing their food, sharing in prayer. Get this. Sharing their possessions. They had all things in common. Here, you can borrow my car any time. Don't be cold. Use my spare coat. Selling the stuff they didn't need, pooling the proceeds so that none of them had any need. Living, in other words, 
like a family. Sharing. You'll notice there with clad and generous hearts. Now, if you're someone still grappling with the Christian faith, if you're not at the point where you call yourself one of those Christians yet, and you're visiting today maybe, can I, I, I say to you, this is literally how we got started. A bunch of people persuaded from Psalm 16 that Jesus qualifies as the holy and faithful one of God. And a bunch of people starting to define and shape their lives by their allegiance to him rather than by peer pressure or the relentless ambition to suck as much as they can get out of life for themselves because life is short. Suddenly they're geared to give and not just take. Suddenly they form a family in a new way, the church. And while the practical expression of that changes over time, that is still the tone and the attitude you will find in any church that is a real church. That's what it looks like when a church is moved by the Holy Spirit. Simple things, aren't they? If you look closely, you'll even see them here at Scott's Church, devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Prayerful. Sharing because we care with glad and generous hearts. Because, you see, we serve that same imperishable king, even as they were growing day by day as God adds to their number those who are being saved. So can I finish by saying, whoever you are here this morning, you are very welcome to be part of it. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.